it was in the wrath of God at the time, and I, I, I still struggle with why. Yeah, gentlemen, why is an impossible question to answer. God does not reveal why. Job cried out from the depths of his soul for 40 chapters. Why? 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 And never had the answer given to him. But men, in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, we find God connecting the dots for us oftentimes between a violation of his commandment and the retribution that is brought upon them as a result. For example, when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit, God killed them. So here we see a direct cause-effect relationship where the Bible connects the dots for us. But in your life and in my life, you cannot connect those dots. You cannot conclude that because you have cancer, you've disobeyed God. Or that he's mad at you. You cannot conclude that because God makes you wealthy, that he's pleased with you. Those dots cannot be connected. Now, we talk about being a God of love, but a God of mercy, and that he is. Yes, yes, yes. But the Apostle Paul said, don't be deceived. And he's writing to Christians. God is not mocked. What you sow, you will reap. Yes. In uh, a Sunday school class that I'm involved with, some guys that came here too, we're studying uh, R.C. Spohl's book, The Holiness of God. And, and that's opened up to us uh, a, a light of, I think we're talking about here today. Until we understand our sinfulness and God's holiness, we all deserve to die. Our next breath is dependent upon God's grace. You know, if God would strike us all in this room dead right now, or a tornado would hit us, or the tsunami would hit us, God would not be unholy or unrighteous. We're totally dependent on, on our very next breath, on, on His grace. And, and the thing that's opening up to us is just, when you get a picture of God's holiness, His awesome holiness, as, as one Don talked about in Isaiah, and it would give us a glimpse of our sinfulness, man's sinfulness, the fall. It, it, it has opened up to me, you know, when you look at these tsunamis and stuff, we all deserve it, every one of us. It's only by the grace of God that we grow our next breath. Hey, gentlemen, I endorse what you said, but understand that because we exist for God and God does not exist for us, the fact that God created you with or without the presence of sin accrues no obligation on the part of God. God can do with you as he pleases. 
So let me use a couple of illustrations for you. Let's say that when you die and you meet God in the face and God says to you, it serves my interests for you to spend an eternity in hell. Would you affirm God's right to do it? Of course you don't want to go there. You'd beg him not to. That's not the question. The question is, would you affirm his right to do it? Can God do with you as he pleases? Yes or no? Okay, it has nothing to do with your sin or his holiness. It has to do with his good pleasure. Now, here in Colorado, men love to fish. And most of the fishing, as I understand it, I'm not a fisherman, is what they call catch and release. Not true? Okay. So what you do is you stand there because it's a pleasurable thing for you. And you throw your fly into the water, and you get that fly in the cheek of that fish, and he tries to get loose, and you enjoy pulling him in, and you get your picture taken with him, and you throw him back in the water, so the next guy can rip the other side of his cheek and do the same thing all over again. We call that sport. And so... My question to you, since Paul says in Ephesians 1, among other places, that you are created for his good pleasure, not for yours, would you affirm his right to do that with you throughout the eternity? Catch and release. Become the object of his sport. Would you affirm his right to do that? I'm suggesting not that he will do that with you. That is not the point. But rather, you ought to ask yourself the question, do I affirm him in this if he so elects? Because if not, then again I respectfully submit to you, you are an idolater. Lance? Well, just a point of clarification. It seems like we have an idea that in the Old Testament, God's a God of wrath. In the New Testament, he's a God of love, mercy, grace, that the wrath part is sort of in the past. and We don't have to worry about that anymore. Would you mind elaborating on that a little bit more? Well, I think it's a fallacious understanding of the Scriptures. Lance, Jesus talks about judgment and the wrath of God more than any other writer in the Bible, Old or New Testament. This gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This gentle Jesus, meek and mild, gentlemen, talks very little about grace. You find none of it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You find smatterings of it in John. Most of the teaching on grace you find with the Apostle Paul. But this gentle Jesus, meek and mild, says, 
in the final analysis, there are three conditions you've got to be, you've got to meet if you want to have a relationship with me in heaven. One positive and two negative. The positive condition is you've got to believe. If you don't believe me, if you call me a liar, you can have no part of me. The two negatives. And that is you must forgive. You cannot be unforgiving. If you do not forgive, I promise you, he says, I will not forgive you. And the second is you cannot deny him. You deny me before men, Jesus says, I promise you, I'll deny you. I'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me. So this is the Jesus of the scriptures. It may not be the Jesus you would like to know, but it is the Jesus that he has revealed. Yes. Back to the statement you say, the only thing that will keep you from sinning is an unqualified desire to be his obedient servant. I think I said something like that, yes. Uh, I'm assuming in discussing that, that's our part, in that um, we have to make a decision in that. The beginning of that, that statement, the only thing that will keep you from sinning, can you share scriptural references that would be God's part, that would be... Um, he is, for example, at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. What are some references? Because I know as a sinner that I need help. I need help from fellow believers, yeah. from literally God himself. Can you um, expound on that? Yeah, Paul says, in, for example, um, I think it's Philippians, that... That God works in us to will and to do of His good pleasure. And like I said to you earlier in our talk, that one of the marvelous manifestations of His grace in my life is not giving me what I wanted. David is on his way to killing Nabal. David is a fugitive at this time in his life. He and his mighty men are wandering the face of the earth, seeking to escape Saul. In this particular incident, he and his mighty men have protected Nabal and his flocks and his servants. It's a feast day now, and he says, sending an ambassador to Nabal, would you give us something to feast on? And Naples says, in essence, hang it on your Midianite beak, Deke. And David's mad. And so he straps on the sword and he says, I swear to you, before the sun goes down, there will not stand one man that pisses against the wall. And he's on his way to wreak havoc. And Abigail meets him and says, here, here's the food. It was a terrible mistake. I 
tell you the story to call to your attention the response of David. He said, praise be God, for surely if he had not stopped me, I would have sinned against him in killing every one of those people. Now, I don't know if you're like I am, gentlemen, but I can look back with regret and embarrassment at times in my life when I have wanted to sin and God stood between me and the opportunity and said, you're not going to do it. Now, those are frightening moments. And though that may happen to us on occasions because he's an incredibly good God, gracious beyond words, you can't count on it. You cannot count on it. One final question. Going back to the right to God to toss us into hell, I was under the impression that the the New Testament gave us a covenant of God that if we believe in Jesus, then we are saved. And so I'm not sure, are you suggesting that if we are saved, he could act arbitrarily and still say, sorry, Charlie? Well, gentlemen, the theologians through the centuries have always understood that grace is a byproduct of election. Because grace means that you brought nothing to the relationship. It was all Him. And so He's gracious to you because He elected you. Once saved, always saved is true. Because once God elects, He does not unelect. But also understand that though it is true, once saved, always saved, Nobody can be certain that they're one of the elect. That's why the Bible constantly encourages us for self-examination. That the doctrine of security is designed for the obedient, never meant for the disobedient. So, it is true what you say but remember the words of the Apostle Paul when he says, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand out of works, but of him that calls. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. Before they were born, before they could do any good or evil, God made that determination. Jacob went to heaven and Esau the opposite, not because Jacob was an intrinsically better person than Esau, but because God decreed it. We're past the time. As always, say to my audience after a message like this, good luck.